Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 76, for the week ending November 10, 2017, the Live from London edition. In this episode, Jay and I return for a wide-ranging discussion of some of the top compliance and ethics-related stories of the week, including... The Department of Justice announcement of four guilty pleas in the Rolls-Royce corruption case and one indictment. We take a look at the question Dick Casson asked of whether the SEC is targeting foreign companies for FCPA enforcement. We consider an interview by Wei Chen in the Wall Street Journal where she suggested there should be FCPA enforcement of U.S. domestic companies rather than internationally focused. And she reviewed the FCPA pilot program and gave some thoughts on monitorships. We discussed the Saudi Arabian corruption crackdown and what it means for the compliance practitioner. We consider an article by Joe Murphy in the SCCE blog of what happens when your general counsel is also your CCO. Matt Kelly asked the question of what will become of the Department of Justice's evaluation of corporate compliance programs. We consider what the Paradise Papers means for the compliance practitioner. We note a two-part series by Mike Volkoff on the intersection of the COSO framework and compliance. And finally, we discussed some AML concerns raised by Adam Davidson in an article in The New Yorker uh, as Adam was on my podcast, Compliance Report International Edition, where he uh, explained the intersection of money laundering and the Trump business empire. Also, we discussed a speech by Rod Rosenstein, where he also discusses the intersection of AML, FCPA, and international investigations. Finally, we end with a review of my monthly podcast, One Month to a More Effective Compliance Program, in November, where I'm focusing on a 360-degree view of communication to enhance your compliance program. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 76, for the week ending November 10th, 2017, the Live from London edition. As always, I'm joined by my colleague and co-host and cohort, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors. Jay, welcome. Tom, is it it tea time in London now, or have we missed that? We've actually missed tea time. That's a little bit earlier. Um, So, uh, but we're at uh, recording time. So I thought maybe uh, we had just a really interesting week, Jay, in uh, FCPA, Compliance and Ethics. So maybe we could just hop right into it with probably the biggest FCPA news of the week, uh, which was the Department of Justice announced four guilty pleas and one indictment. Um, in follow-on individual prosecutions involving the Rolls-Royce corruption case. So uh, lots to unpack here. Um, The uh, four guilty pleas actually began before the Rolls-Royce worldwide uh, corruption settlement back in January. So I thought, one number one, that was interesting. But since that time, the Department of Justice has secured three additional pleas Uh, One was a U.S. individual residing in the great state of Texas, but the others were foreigners, uh, and the Department of Justice was able to persuade them to uh, accept guilty pleas. The indictment came on an individual who has not been um, obviously pled guilty, and he's outside the United States, uh, whether he's on the lam or just uh, places unknown or in the country of Turkey and not subject to U.S. jurisdiction or extradition, rather, at this point. It's unknown. 
But uh, I wrote about the case. Um, Sam Rubenfeld took a look at it. And it's, uh, I think, a pretty significant development. Anytime you have a, a number of individual prosecutions, the, they detail the bribery scheme quite well in the four criminal informations and one indictment. So lots of information for the compliance practitioner to unpack and a tip of the prosecutorial hat to uh, the DOJ for uh, bringing these. Uh, do you see any um, any linkage between our, our favorite book, the the Chicken Shit Club, and uh, any type of tea leaves on which way enforcement is turning with the uh, Trump administration? Well, I don't really see that connection, Jay, but I do see uh, a couple of other things we'll get to later in the podcast. Talks by uh, DOJ representatives, uh, which uh, pretty clearly to me indicate that. The professional cadre class of the Department of Justice is clearly committed to FCPA enforcement. And the political class who made these speeches, uh, not uh, Attorney General Sessions, not to say he's not pro, uh, pro-hardline pro prosecution of FCPA cases, but certainly uh, Acting Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Blanco and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein both made uh, speeches this week where they re-emphasized the department's commitment to specifically FCPA prosecutions as a part of the global fight uh, against the scourge of bribery and corruption. So uh, whatever Donald Trump's misconceptions of the FCPA are, and I think they're probably numerous, the uh, prosecutorial class clearly recognizes the value to this law in instances far beyond simply U.S. business interests, and that I believe that will drive significant prosecution going forward. Great. Uh, so next we have a story from um, FCPA blog from our good friend Dick Casson. And uh, I think you'll have some interesting stuff to unpack here about Charles Kane and whether or not the SEC is targeting foreign companies. Right. So actually, this sort of picks up, Jay, where we were in the last uh, section. Uh, about uh, where this all may be leading. And we, of course, or at least I was focusing on the Department of Justice because that's who Kenneth Blanco and Rod Rosenstein work for or work at. But Charles Kane was appointed the head of the FCPA unit in the Securities and Exchange Commission. It was a promotion from being acting head after Kara Brockmeyer left. But Charles had been there since uh, the unit was formed back in 2010. So he's certainly Uh, well-known to the FCPA compliance community and well-known to FCPA enforcement. But he said uh, this week um, something that uh, Casson quoted, and I'll just read from it. I look forward to building upon the important work the unit has done to combat corruption and level the playing field globally. And Casson asked if that meant the SEC was targeting foreign companies. Now, if you tie that into the remarks of Rod Rosenstein, who really focused on, I think, foreign company enforcement. But then you look at the remarks of Ken Blanco, who talked about the international cooperation aspect of FCPA and anti-corruption enforcement going forward. Uh, I think some very interesting thoughts. Now, you're going to talk about an interview Wei Chin gave to our friend Harry Cutter over at the uh, Wall Street Journal Compliance and Risk Journal, uh, and she went in a little bit different direction, but um, lots of different uh, 
uh, wording here on which way enforcement was going to go. And uh, I, I have to say, Jay, that I really don't read this as targeting foreign companies. Um, I read that as uh, I read level the playing field globally as a phrase indicating they wanted the global business playing field to be level and not that they were leveling it by targeting foreign companies who might be engaging in bribery and corruption. Nevertheless, uh, it could, could be interpreted otherwise. Yeah, Tom, I think you're a little bit uh, weak on the nativism that we need here as new <laughs> Americans. And, um, you know, it's just kind of interesting um, the way Dick wrote it. He pulls excerpts out of the resource guide, and some of them use the phrasing leveling, level the playing field for honest businesses. And they see that several times. But then they also say level the playing field for U.S. businesses. So, uh you know, um, my quip aside, I think you could read it both ways, but I think uh, I agree with what you're saying when you take the um, statements of Rosenstein, um, uh, Blanco, and now you take Charles Kane and you put it all together. And, and it does show um, a continued commitment to the FCPA and the enforcement thereof and trying to level the playing field for all on a global basis. So that really so, uh, leads into uh, kind of our next one, though, which uh, we wanted to talk about, which I thought was very uh, significant. Uh, it's always significant when Wei Chen speaks because of her former position as compliance counsel. But Henry Cutter had a very nice interview with her, like I said, in the Wall Street Risk and Compliance Journal. And, and she really went in a little bit different direction. So what were your thoughts on that, Jay? Well, uh, a couple things that uh, directly affect where my uh, business interests lie. But, you know, first of all, um, she talked about, um, you know, how the current administration is dealing with things uh, both domestically and far away. And if she sees any um, difference in how the uh, uh, administration is handling that. And one of the things they talked about is uh that uh, the DAG said in the last month that the DOJ is reviewing the pilot program under the FCPA that began in April of 2006. And um, they asked Wei Chung, do you see parts of the program that are particularly successful or might need a tweak? And um, as she often does, Wei comes back to data. She likes hard data, and she her personal feeling is that the program's only been in effect for, I guess, effectively about 18 months, and she doesn't think uh, a one year is a proper sample size to be looking at the data and to see whether or not the pilot program works. So that's one thing. Then she also opined about, you know, how effective, how can you measure the effectiveness of your training? And again, you know, she does uh, see a lack of some data points. Uh, the next thing that I uh, hinted at before that speaks more about uh, my specific job and what we do at AMI is that she said, uh, there's a third area that's under review, which is corporate monitor programs. Are there things that you would change? And she says, although my thought is much more radical, I think, frankly, monitorship should become their own agency. We're talking about a small department of 10 to 20 people funded by fines and penalties. The monitor would essentially be a, a civil servant 
and would use outside technical experts for technical aspects of the monitorship. So um, that's an idea that I've never heard uh, articulated before. What, what about you, Tom? So I have not heard that either. Um, I guess, Jay, I know obviously affiliated monitors is in that business, and I don't really want to speak on that part of it because I see a real difficulty politically getting that through. Uh, Number one, uh, she wants it to be paid for out of the fines and penalties that are assessed against companies. And one of the things that I would probably be vehemently against is any segregation of DOJ or SEC fines for any specific DOJ or SEC purpose. So I'm absolutely comfortable with a fine and penalty being paid to the Registry of the Treasury of the United States or the Treasury of the United States. But when you start allocating monies to be a part of the enforcement system, um, that really concerns me that it will become a not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but a self-funding prophecy. Uh, two is I'm not sure uh, it's really the best process to have government officials as monitors. Um, she speaks to a, a professional expertise. Uh, there's, a, I think, a pretty good professional class, or at least some professional class of monitors, uh, and certainly um, in the private sector. Uh, and I'm not sure Congress would ever really approve something like that. I'm not sure the business community would be for it uh, either to have that uh, within the government. So I guess I see difficulties politically getting it. I, I'm pretty set against the funding mechanism she uh, articulated. Uh, obviously, I think our audience would know you and I are not in favor of that. So uh, we really can't speak to, I think, the positive aspects of it, if if there are any. Uh, but uh, it's uh, certainly uh, not a proposal we have seen before. It... Um, it may be debated going forward, uh, but I don't, I don't see – well, first of all, I don't see this Congress doing anything. Uh, and even if we got past the point of the know-nothing, do-nothing Congress that we ha- have in place, I'm not sure that this is something that could really garner enough support on both sides of the aisle, even if we had a Congress that was inclined to actually pass legislation. Yeah, I'd like to just make one other point that she doesn't really address is, um, you know – when we are in the situation of, of being in the monitor, it's um, kind of like being a no man because your client who you're monitoring feels that you're there as um, a narc, that you're there for the government and you're trying to, you know, look for other things that may or may not be right. And from the government's perspective, they see us going in there. And as she articulated that, you know, maybe there seems to be uh an incentive for us to uh, elongate the period of the uh, monitor. And, you know, in the past, uh, if we are able to get a client to a position and if they have a 36 month monitorship and we can sign off that they've done it in 24, we, cre- we feel that that creates the value for the company of 
actually working with the monitor and, uh, you know, creating controls that work. So if you had a government monitor being assigned to the company, I think that would make it really hard to have the independence in there and to give the monitor the ability to get the job done and help the client succeed. So I think that although you would create, uh, you know, a class of people in the government who might have better skills moving forward, I think to your point, Tom, you want to use people who are in the professional communities, people who have done monitorships before, whether they're law firms, whether they're accounting firms, whether they're specific professionals who do monitorships, I think they are the people who have the skill set for the job. Right, right. I guess, uh, Jay, in my experience, I cannot think of one monitor who worked to extend a monitorship. I have seen a couple of monitorships extended, but frankly, that was for the conduct of the company, not from what I was able to ascertain that was actions of a monitor. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, unfor- unfortunately, unfortunately, there are some recidivists, and I think that's what you're referring to. Right, right. Nevertheless, uh, you know, an interesting position by her. Um, then the other, you know, the other thing was uh, really that you touched on is she focused on U.S. domestic companies as what she believed to be a target for FCPA uh, enforcement action. And uh, she thought that uh, the U.S. government should be focusing on really on that, um, not international and really in contrast to what we talked about in terms of Charles Kane uh, and some of the other things. So um, that really um, is not the view, I think, of the Department of Justice who sees international enforcement and international investigations as a much more effective way to try to work against bribery and corruption, money laundering, other uh, uh, nefarious acts by nefarious actors. And certainly Kenneth Blanco's remarks at the uh, NYU conference uh, yesterday about, or maybe even today, uh, I guess it'll be yesterday by the time this podcast goes up, um, spoke to the cooperation of the and the commitment of the signatories to the uh, OECD anti-bribery uh, corruption, which is grounded really in the uh, recognition of a collective harm of bribery and corruption and a collective desire to stand firm against those efforts, whatever companies, uh, countries of origins it might be. So um, I really don't see, uh, I guess I don't see the Department of Justice favoring uh, prosecutions of U.S. domestic or foreign companies. I see them favoring prosecution of, of companies that violate the law. So um, I think... Uh, so speaking about countries where laws might be violated and crackdowns, uh, you wrote a very interesting piece uh, earlier this week comparing uh, what's happening in Saudi Arabia happened before in... Why don't you jump into that one, Tom? Sure. The uh, For those who are not aware, the uh, current Crown Prince, Crown Prince Prince Salam, uh, had uh, initiated a crackdown of 30 of his brother princes, uh, family members of uh, the House of Saud, and uh, had them arrested, uh, all billionaires. Uh, many had invested in Western companies. Many were agents of Western companies doing business in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And 
whatever you may think of the politics of this, Jay, I think it has some pretty significant implications for U.S. companies doing business both in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and, frankly, those uh, outside who have accepted uh, investment monies, personal or other, from uh, high net worth individuals in Saudi Arabia. So uh, it was, I believe, Prince Alawid uh, was the most prominent <clears throat> simply because he's a Western focused investor and is focused on many tech companies in Silicon Valley and, and other locations. Uh, but if you are doing business in Saudi Arabia, uh, I would urge you to do a very thorough review of your third-party program in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a country that requires you to have a local agent. Uh, most likely, you're going to have a, a member of the royal family. If one of those persons has been arrested, um, you need to have that information now um, because if they become arrested and they are convicted under Saudi law, uh, they're now a criminal, and that means you've been doing business with criminals. <clears throat> Once again, leaving aside the politics of that, um, if they're a criminal under Saudi law, that's going to be good enough for the U.S. government, and the government may come knocking wanting to know uh, why you paid these people. Conversely, if you have accepted their monies, uh, the Saudi government has already announced they're going to start asset forfeiture and asset seizures. Are they going to come to the United States? Will they send a uh, mutual assist treaty assistance request to the United States to seize funds of monies invested? If we think back to the Wolf of Wall Street, and we've talked about that over the past uh, year or so, the money from 1MDB, uh, the government went to that uh, movie producer and said, not only do you have to give the money back, you've got to give profits back. Uh, you have to disgorge profits that you got from the benefit of ill-gotten uh, ill monies, and you know that's potentially on the table. So uh, if you've done business with, with these people, if you've done business in the kingdom, you need to get ahead of this now and uh, <clears throat> start looking at it um, in a long-winded way of saying, Jay, simply because business is done one way in a country sort of forever, uh, I guarantee you that company does not allow bribery and corruption. And when the shoe turns, um, when the worm turns, <laughs> whenever it turns, uh, just as it has in China, you could be left with holding a very smelly bag of uh, corrupt something. <laughs> All right. So taking on uh, what's happening in Saudi Arabia, we always uh, get thoughtful stuff from our colleagues at uh, SCCE. And Joe Murphy had a very uh, brief but enlightening piece on your general counsel is your SECO. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, Joe, if you don't know Joe, you should. He's one of the smartest guys in compliance. And you're right. He wrote this piece. It was very short for Joe. He usually uh, pontificates a little bit more. Um, but he just asked some some basic questions. If you've got a joint GC, CCO, CECO role uh, and the government comes knocking, um, he, he said, uh, how are you going to respond to some or more of the uh, following questions? Was the promotion or hiring of your GC when the uh, Announcement stated that uh, it would also include the uh, CCO role. Uh, how much was uh, put in the job description about the CCO? What's the CCO uh, role written into the current job description? Uh, how much does the CCO's annual evaluation or the GC's annual evaluation cover the compliance program? Is the CCO title on the GC's business card? Does the GC have any training in compliance and ethics? Have they ever attended a uh, 
SCCE Institute or conference? Uh, is the uh, GC a certified compliance professional? Does the GC even know what the Code of Ethics for Compliance and Professionals is? What experience does the GC have in compliance and ethics? And if, if any of those answers are, are really not positive, he said the DOJ is uh, more likely than not to take a very scant view of uh, having a dual role. Now, and many companies are so small that they may only have one lawyer on staff, and that lawyer may wear multiple hats. But there are some large companies that still have a combined role, and uh, you just need to be ready if the government comes knocking, knocking how you're going to respond to some of these, Jay. I think it's that question that we always have about does a company have a robust, living, active code of conduct and program, or is it a paper exercise? And I think these questions get right to the fact that if you've got the GC who has the role, it's got to be more than a title. There has to be some action and some doing of compliance tied in to his or her uh, having that title. So next up, uh, we had a really interesting article, I think, uh, Jay, from uh, our good friend Matt Kelly over at Radical Compliance. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. So um, about a year ago, I think, Tom, Matt was the one who broke uh, the uh, effectiveness questions that were released by Wei Chen and the DOJ. Um, initially, they weren't intended for publication, but they somehow got uh, leaked out there. And um, one of the questions that Matt addresses is, you know, if they're going to take this effectiveness, effectiveness guidance from 2017, you know, or take it away with the simplifications that uh, the Trump administration wants to do. And uh, Matt put together a really great um, visual tool that takes the effectiveness guidance puts it up against the uh, FCPA guidance from 2012 and the United States sentencing guidance. And his analysis at the end is all these things that were just brought to the forefront in last year's effectiveness guidance already exist in the FCPA guidance and the U.S. sentencing guidelines. So, um, you know, again, I think through the spine of this podcast, we are seeing that there's heavy-duty commitment to moving forward to uh, making sure that companies have vibrant living compliance programs. I think it's really uh, what here shown us is it's allayed a lot of the fears that we had back in January with our pre-Trump administration jitters. So uh, from that, we go to Paradise Papers, and this, is, I believe is the sequel to the Panama Papers. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not sure sequel is the right word, but certainly a follow-on. And the Paradise Papers were uh, papers from a law firm, data from a law firm that was either leaked or purloined. It's unclear at this point. Of course, the law firm says it was stolen, but uh, they'd have to say that. Um, And... This involves, Jay, companies that were not engaged in illegal tax avoidance, but legal tax evasion strategies, meaning they shifted monies between uh, tax jurisdictions to have a lower to lower tax rate. And so the biggest name, of course, on there is Apple, 
who uh, Tim Cook, after having uh, said that they would not utilize Caribbean islands to uh, engage in tax evasion, uh, they were absolutely correct. They did not use a Caribbean island. They used the Isle of Man or the Isle of Jersey. Uh, so um, the damage here, and of course, Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, turns out he's doing business with the Russians. <clears throat> but right now it's sort of name and shame and embarrass because uh, this is not illegal activity. Nevertheless, for the compliance practitioner, once again, I think it opens up an entire uh, area of inquiry because if you are doing business with one of these companies and it comes out that they are trying to evade taxes in a legal manner, particularly in light of um, the current debate in the U.S. Congress about a tax cut for corporations, um, how much blowback is going to come on you? So uh, the question of who you're doing business with and how you're doing business with them is becoming more paramount for the uh, reputational risk and reputational end of things. Uh, this story broke, I think, over the weekend, so it's still uh, kind of ongoing. But uh, once again, you got to know who you're doing business with. And I guess uh, don't forget the monarchy and also one of my favorite pop stars, Bono. So it's uh, it's legal tax avoidance. It's not invasion. No, 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 no. no. Tax avoidance. Tax avoidance is illegal. Tax evasion okay. is legal. So okay, I uh, got that backwards. Sorry. You got it backwards. Wish I was. Wish I was a lawyer. Well, it, you know, it's clear that uh, your tax evasion strategy is not really as developed as some of these. <laughs> All right, so we're here in the stretch. How about what does our good friend Mike Volkov have to say about Coso? So Mike took a look at the intersection of the COSO 2013 framework and internal controls. Uh, uh, not really, I, I shouldn't say looked at it in terms of internal controls, uh, but he, he looked at the framework in terms of overall compliance. It's a great two-part series. Part one, he gives a little information and background on the, the framework and the light of compliance, but he also talks about it in part two on how to uh, uh, break down silos and organizations. Uh, we've linked to it, of course, in the show notes. I'll commend that to you. Uh, we had some some thoughts this week on uh, anti-money laundering, Jay. I was pr uh, privileged enough to have Adam Davidson back. Uh, he's the New Yorker author, or reporter rather, who wrote about Trump's worst deal uh, early this spring that I interviewed him on. And he talks in this podcast about his reporting on money laundering and the Trump organization. He explains how all that works. Uh, it really goes into great detail. I thought it was interesting that we we hinted at the, or not hinted, but we talked about the Rod Rosenstein speech. And Rosenstein talked about the intersection of FCPA, AML, and international investigation. So clearly there's a tie with all that. Adam, Adam Davidson has been the reporter on the ground doing the, uh, the spade work um, to report on this. It's typically been in the, in the New Yorker. So uh, uh, that podcast posted a little bit earlier this week. So uh, check it out if you want to find out about money laundering and building hotels in uh, the Stans. And uh, were there any um, takeaways that uh, really impressed you from uh, Rosenstein's speech, or is it just more the <clears throat> the general tenor and the um, you know the, the the line that we see coming forth from? DOJ and SEC going forward on 
how we're going to prosecute uh, FCPA and the other associated crimes. You know, Jay, I guess uh, for me, it just confirmed once again that the both professional class of uh, Department of Justice and SEC prosecutors and the political appointments, they're there to prosecute. They didn't go to those agencies to quit prosecuting, to make it easy for companies to violate the law. Uh, they believe in law. They believe in the letter and the spirit of the law, and they're going to prosecute uh, to the extent companies violate the law. And uh, whatever people may think Donald Trump thinks of, of laws like the FCPA, the professional prosecutorial class is going to enforce those laws. And so it's one more uh, piece of information that uh, certainly Rod Rosenstein has made clear his where he stands on these things. And uh, I think that's uh, the robust compliance programs that we have both advocated going forward are still going to need to be in place. Yeah, I'll just quote three brief little sections. Uh, he said, one of the best ways a corporation can act with integrity and protect its brand is through developing and faithfully executing a strong corporate compliance pro uh, policy. But some of the department's recent cases show that not all institutions are successful in establishing a culture of compliance. And here's what I like. Culture is about more than written rules and annual training sessions. Culture involves the way people think and speak about their responsibilities. It is an organization with an ethical culture rather in an organization with an ethical culture, the leaders consistently model corporate values, employees incorporate those values into the conduct and violations are promptly addressed. So uh, it seems like if you put all three of those things together, uh, the deputy attorney general certainly gets it. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So Jay, there, there are two things that I wanted to sort of end on. Um, talk about my uh, monthly podcast series of one month to a more effective compliance program here in November. I'm doing a 360 degree communication uh, view of communications to enhance your compliance program. My uh, uh, podcast this month, that podcast is rather is sponsored by uh, Dun and Bradstreet. Also, I'm pleased to announce uh, op opening up of my uh, FCPA masterclass to be held in New York on uh, November 28th and 29th. I'm very pleased and privileged to partner with Jonathan Marks at Markham LLP. So we'll be doing the uh, training at Markham's offices. Uh, it's uh, posted today on the FCPA blog, uh, and I wrote earlier this week on my blog about it. Uh, you will link to the show notes and registration and information. But if you want really the top master class on nuts and bolts of compliance, this is the one for you. So I uh, hope you can join us in New York. Uh, <clears throat> do you have a... Um, Jay Rosen weekend report in the works. I do. And, and this one, uh, I, I got to be careful how I write this, but um, right before um, Comey got fired, I had written a piece about uh, Comey and uh, um, uh, who, who, was, who was the predecessor before um, – uh, the, the the last memo. What what what's what's her name? Sally Yates. Uh, Sally Yates. So I had a picture of Comey and Yates, and the next week, or even the next day, when my thing got published, he got axed as he was here in D in L.A. at his training session. And then I just noticed uh, from uh, October first, I had something about swimming with the sharks and Kevin. Um, 
Spacey is in the cover of that movie poster. So I have to very carefully consider what I'm going to be writing going forward because I think I've got a little bit of a Nostradamus effect happening. So I'm going <laughs> to um, I'm going to meditate upon that this weekend. All right. Well, uh, we'll meditate and uh, see what you come up with. Uh, yeah. One last thing, Tom, uh, since you were in jolly old Ling- England, anything that you wanted to tell us about people that you connected with in London or any uh, any quick takeaways? Sure. Uh, actually, I had the privilege, Jay, to meet uh, Mark Rainsford, QC, and Jason Sugarman, QC, both of RS Legal, uh, strategic partners of affiliated monitors. I did a lovely podcast with them where they talk about RS Legal strategy and uh, what they do and what they bring to the partnership with um, Affiliated Monitors. I'll be posting that podcast next week. Also, I did a uh, podcast with uh, Jonathan Armstrong at Cordery Compliance, where Jonathan actually interviewed me. So we have both the audio and video, and I'm going to post the video on YouTube, and I'll do the audio in a typical uh, audio podcast that I'll also post next week. So those will be going up. Uh, spoke at... Jonathan's law firm, Cordery Compliance in uh, London, and also at uh, AGMA Conference in London. So uh, lots of good meetings, lots of good uh, reports. I uh, got to check in with Barry Vitale over at uh, Pinsent Masons. So it's uh, it's been a great trip. So all of those will go up uh, next week, Jay. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm glad you had a wonderful week in London. Uh, this is the end of the first week of the Houston Astros being Major League Baseball World Champions, and I'm sure there'll be lots of MLB gear arriving at the Fox household in Houston. You know, uh, lots would be perhaps an understatement. Uh, all I will say is that the uh, having a World Series signed ball by every Astro is a lot more expensive in 2017 than it was back in 2005. I can't imagine. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like you to thank you for sharing some time with us and taking a look at the week in FCPA that was episode 76 for the week ending November 10th, the live from London edition. Thanks for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to our podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. It would help in our rankings and also help get the word about the only weekly FCPA Compliance and Ethics wrap-up podcast. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thank you again for joining us, and I hope you will join us again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.